Hey, welcome back to another edition of Leave the Ring Radio. I didn't put it on the blog talk, guys. I, I apologize. I know some folks wanted to call in, but um, to tell you the truth, man, um, I still haven't figured it out how to link it up. It's a pain in the ass. I can't bring in uh, my guests who I wanted on today. So we're just going to do it straight from YouTube, and then I'll post up the uh, MP3 onto the blog talk. But let me welcome my guest here, the senior writer for Boxing Scene, Keith Eidick. How you doing, brother? I'm good, Dave. How you doing, man? Thanks for having me. Good, man. Good. So, so how how are you coping with everything, man? How are you doing? Uh, 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 you know, how's your daily life been? Is it changed a whole lot, or are you still kind of just going about uh, your normal business? Uh, you know, it's obviously changed for all of us in in, in the world, of course. You know, just right. not going out and all. You know, just trying to adhere to everything they tell us. And you know, I live in New Jersey, so there are, there are well over a hundred thousand cases here in New Jersey, and about 6,000 deaths or so now. So it's been, you know, it's been tough out here, uh, you know, in New York, New Jersey area and everything. Right. It's been rough, but uh, thankfully no one in my family is sick or no one close to me is uh, is sick. So, you know, just counting my blessings. And from a work standpoint, uh, it actually, it's it's interesting because everyone's stuck at home and they're looking right. for things to do, you know, that the, the site generates a lot of traffic usually anyway, but it hasn't uh, tailed off as much as we expected because I think people are home and they're looking for stuff to read. You know, of course, there are no live fights for us. And that's, you know, so on Saturdays, traffic is down a little bit from a workload standpoint. I mean, we're still cranking stuff out every day and um, there's just no traveling. And I do you know, obviously do a lot of traveling for the job. So from that standpoint, that that's, you know, I haven't had to leave the house for work for uh seven weeks or so, which is, which is unusual, but, uh, but overall just, you know, we're just, uh, lucky to be healthy. And, uh, I think that's all we can look at it. That's, that's the whole way all of us can look at it at this point. Right, Dave? Exactly. You know, and I bet you, uh, the interviews are coming a lot easier than, than before when everybody was functioning. Cause I know that when I'm doing interviews, it's always like, uh, he can't do it at this time because he, he's not going to be here or there's a, there's like a waiting game. Um, how's that been going for you? Yeah, I mean, it's been easier to get guys on the phone because, you know, guys don't, they don't have any, not that they're making excuses, but no one's really busy doing what they're ordinary, even training. Guys aren't, for the most part, training at this point. So, yeah, it's been easier to get guys on the phone. And, and I think people are bored and, and they, you know, they, boxers generally like to talk. I mean, there are some exceptions, but most of them like to talk and everything. So it's been, uh, they've been accessible and that's been helpful, you know, getting our jobs done. And uh, we definitely appreciate the cooperation. Exactly, man. So let me let me ask you this, um, and we'll definitely jump into our topic in a short bit here. But I wanted to get some of your background. I mean, what, why, why boxing? Why did you decide to pick uh, uh, to do journalistic uh, uh, stuff in boxing? Well, I'll give you a short story about how I fell into covering boxing. I, I I started at a newspaper in New Jersey in 1993. I was still a senior in college when I worked there. I was the low man on the totem pole. I was a part-time employee one of the few people on the staff who knew anything about boxing. And I covered a lot of other sports. I, you know, I covered the NFL for 14, 15 years, uh, covered you know, a variety of other sports at the collegiate high school and professional levels for 23 years altogether. It wound up being, uh, but boxing was always one of my specialties. We had a, a writer uh, who covered boxing at the paper and she was a fascinating lady. She covered for, for decades. She covered boxing, a German woman oh, wow. uh, named Rosemary Ross. Uh, so she covered it and she wound up leaving the paper. This was in a, like late in 1996. And I was basically the only person on the staff that knew a lot about boxing. So they said, you're the boxing writer. That's how it, <laughs> that's how it kind of happened. And uh, I never I never dreamed when I you know when I was in college that you know, 25 years later or whatever, I, my full-time occupation would be covering boxing. It's, you know, it's, 
it's worked out amazingly well. I love the sport, obviously. And uh, it's just crazy how you wind up doing things with your life that you never anticipated. Exactly. You know, you know, let me ask you this, because I, 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 I'm always fascinated with the folks that are in the business. You know, I've been, you know, been doing this for quite some time, not as long as you've been doing it. You know, I've been reading your, your stuff for, for quite some time. So this is actually a real treat for me, man, to get a chance to to speak. We've we've kind of had like few little, you know, very small conversations on Twitter, but never really had a chance to mm-hmm. a combo, uh, you know, direct to each other through Skype and stuff. Um, what is who who was the who was the toughest interview for you in boxing? Uh, whether it was a fighter, a promoter, or anything else, uh, uh, you know, publicist. Who was the toughest for you to have an interview where you had to really kind of like. Uh, dig deep to them and find what what's made them spark, you know, to even get something drawn out of them. Well, first, Dave, thanks for the kind words, man. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you reading all these years, too. And um, it's my pleasure to come on. Um, you know, I, I'd say that the toughest interview, and I don't know that it was in the sense that you couldn't get anything out of him. It was just that you didn't know what he was going to do. And it was Mike Tyson, mm. you know, because as a kid, you know, I was in high school Mike Tyson was a phenomenon, right? I mean, he's a you know, world-renowned, well, <laughs> did a lot of crazy things, obviously, but he was right. infamous or world-famous, however you want to look at it. So when I was covering, you know, he was toward the end of his career when I was first started covering boxing, and the first time you're around him, he, you just don't know how, you know, he was in a very volatile stage in his life. I mean, he's much more mellow now and everything. He's easier to talk to, but right. you just know what was going to set him off and how he was going to react in certain ways. And there were times... You know, we interviewed mostly in group settings, you know, right, but still right. you just didn't know what he was going to say or do and what might make him snap or, you know, even the most innocuous question might set him off. So you just really didn't know how, how he was going to react. So I, to me, you know, I think th- th- that's what I draw on probably as the most unusual or difficult interview because he was just so unpredictable. Man, I mean, you know, I remember when he went off on that one reporter. I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember his name. Remember when he started grabbing himself and he was like, you know, I'll F you until you love me. Um, and I forget, what was the name of that reporter, man? I have it in the back of my head. Um, his name is his name is Scoop Malinowski. His Scoop. name is Mark Malinowski, right? Yeah. So I was I was there, Dave. I was there that day, and I and I know Scoop from covering football. We, you know, I covered the Giants for a, a decent amount of time, and Scoop was a, you know, he covered football back then, Jets and Giants games and everything. So I knew him for a long time, and uh, when that whole thing happened, you know, it was January of two thousand two, and I can still remember being in that hotel in Manhattan where they had the, the press conference. And like, if you told someone, bef- if you were making up a story, right. you couldn't have made up anything more absurd than happened that day. He bit Lennox Lewis's leg, <laughs> and then you know, <laughs> that wasn't the craziest thing that he did. He right. bit his opponent's leg, and that wasn't the nuttiest thing that happened. So you know, it's it's funny. Like he was, um, there were, it was open to the public. So there were just random tourists in there. Right. And when he started grabbing his crotch and saying, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. There was a couple. He was looking in my He wasn't talking to me, uh-huh. but there was like it looked like he was talking to this couple that looked like they were from Minnesota or Wisconsin or something like that. And they were <laughs> horrified. So they were like, I'm going to get here before Mike Tyson gets off this stage. But as he's as he's going nuts, Dave, uh-huh. that's what Scoop, who, who, again, I've known for a long time, just blurts out. Get him a straight jacket. And I don't think he realized how loud he said it, nor that Tyson was going to turn around and react the way that he did. Right. Tyson hears what he says, 
and and somehow his back seemed to be turned when he said it, but he knew who said it because he pointed right at him when he turned around. Yep. And that's when he said, I'm going to F you till you love me and on all this crazy stuff. And <laughs> I'm looking at this and I'm like, is this happening? Is this really? Ha-? And then I went back to the office, to the newspaper office from there. And it's like, and it was already on CNN and everywhere. At the, and I'm right. like, guys, you're not going to believe. And they're like, get out of here. That didn't happen. And they know Scoop. So they're like, wait, he was yelling at Scoop? I said, yes. So it was, it was, that was. It was something else, man. I wonder how much toilet paper Scoop used that night. <laughs> Dave, it was crazy. I mean, it was every bit as crazy as it looks in that YouTube video. It yeah. was that crazy. It was, it was unbelievable. I still can't believe it happened t- almost 20 years later. Man, I gotta tell you, that's pretty ballsy of you. After that, though, you know, to to even interview him, man, because it it seemed like he had two targets: white guys and women. You know what I mean? Those are the targets yeah. that end up setting him off at that time. You know, he just went ballistic with everybody. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, Scoop. Uh, I mean, I think after that, even Scoop got got into further trouble with some of the stuff he would say, like even on his Facebook and stuff. And yeah. um, I don't know what happened to him, but I remember that specifically when mike tyson turned around that's that's a great story man they were saying like i said i wonder how much scoop uh, how much toilet paper scoop used on that night after uh when he was uh pointed you know mike tyson pointed right at him man because i'd be shitting bricks <laughs> if he, he ran and out of there it was like you know in the old cartoons when they have the cutout of the person running yeah. through the wall it was like one of those things and he was and i saw i remember it was a couple of days before shane mosley fought vernon forrest at the theater at the garden uh-huh. And I had and I saw they had a, you know, like a media dining room set up basically in the theater. And I it was the first it was like three days after that, maybe. And I saw Scoop and I said, are you all right, man? Are you? And he's like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. like almost like nothing happened. I was like, dude, <laughs> I saw you run out. of you, you were like Carl Lewis running out of the building. I mean, come on. <laughs> <man>. <laughs> oh, I wish I would have been there. That would have been so great, man. You know, but uh, so let me ask you this. What is boxing to you? What is boxing to me? You said. Yeah. What is boxing to you? Well, it's a it's a big part of my life. Obviously, you know, it, you know, you spend so much time working and you spend so much time around it. It's a it's a huge part of your life, you know. And it's like, as you know, Dave, it's a it's a marginalized sport in the United States now, and you know, it's a niche sport and everything. But, um, but it, it consumes your life. I mean, because the thing is, I think, uh, even as even as an objective reporter. You do, you know, you learn these guys' stories and you kind of realize how much is at stake for them every time they go in the ring and how much it impacts their family's well-beings and their own well-beings. And also, you know, they literally, and I never lose sight of this, it's something that I think sometimes when you're, you know, you're just going through day after day, sometimes you can, but they literally risk their lives every time they go in there. They, they, they honestly don't, you don't want to be melodramatic, but they honestly don't know every time they walk up those steps, whether they're going to walk back down. So right. I kind of like, you know, when people like flippantly criticize guys, I'm like, look, this is a very different thing to do for a living. And while, you know, some guys, I'm not saying some guys have the same amount of fortitude as as every guy has the same amount of fortitude or anything i just think people should be more careful i guess is what i'm saying of, of being critical of fighters because right it take even the worst fighter it takes a lot of balls to go in there and do what they do it does you know um i mean look you're getting hit in the face who likes to do that it's not normal i've always said to kids walking in the gyms um even when i used to work with my kids and even to my even myself 
when I, you know, used to box in the amateurs and stuff, um, I used to tell folks, you got to be a little nuts. Got There's got to be something wrong up there, man, to want to get yeah. hit, you know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if it was, you know, I like what you say. It, it is a niche sport. And uh, I don't know about you, though. I kind of like it that it's a niche sport here in the States. You know, it's not the number one sport, obviously. Obviously, we would like that. But I like the fact that fans can actually cover it, you know, to an extent. Sometimes there's some fans where you just kind of cringe and be like, eh, maybe this is not your thing. You just take a seat back. But I do like the fact that, you know, boxing is always has always been a step ahead than the other sports, even though it's been a niche sports. Uh, what I mean by like the OTT, um, the, you know, the Internet, uh, you know, Max Boxing, Boxing Scene, when they came around, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and in like YouTube. Uh, you know, I was one of the, uh, like the 10 or I don't remember how many, uh, guys that started up on YouTube, a YouTube channel and started talking boxing. So I've always enjoyed that, man. But if, if I had the power to change certain things in the sport to make it better, I definitely would be, you know, uh, judging. I'm not one to like complain all the time and bitch and moan on Twitter to fighters, call them bums. I don't believe in that. Just like what you mentioned right now, because these guys put their lives on the line. But I do like to complain about, not complain, but point out about PEDs usage, uh, how we have to have more stricter uh, uh, testing, yeah. uh, 365 days. But the other thing, too, is uh, judging. I don't I don't want to criticize the judging because you know what? I watched the fight and uh, in the process of being on social media, have said this particular person won the round. And then somebody else is like, what are you, blind and blah, 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 right? You know, but I would like to learn the process of what they do to teach these judges, Keith, of how to judge a fight. And I think that would give us a much bigger understanding of what these judges are looking for. Are they fresh? Do they have fresh eyes? Um, do they really understand the sport? Do they understand the system that is in place to score a fight? Uh, you know, my old co-host, Gabriel Montoya, once mentioned, you know, it'd be nice that if they put like a camera you know, one of those, uh, what are those, those cameras you put on the top of your head and you could see right, right. what they're seeing. What, what do you think? A, a judge cam would, a judge cam would be an excellent idea. You know, I think one thing that gets lost sometimes and, and look it, like everything else, Dave, some judges are just better than others. Just like some boxers are better than others. Right. Some writers are better than others. Some, you know, podcasts are better than others, but I just think that's human nature. But I think sometimes something that gets lost is the angle that a judge is sitting at, because sometimes their view is blocked from seeing certain things. Whereas, as you know, one judge on the other side might see a clean punch land, whereas the judge who's, you know, with the, with the fighter's back turned in front of that judge might not see that. Uh, So I think, you know, sometimes uh, we're overly critical. It's a natural part of covering boxing and I think being a fan of boxing you want them to get it right every single right. time not sometimes not most times every single time you want to see them get it right and if you see a judge consistently get it consistently either getting it wrong or not getting it as right as the other judges people are going to complain as you and they should I mean they should it's the other thing is it's a very subjective science Dave as you know right you well know right so I think sometimes you know some people one thing that I think is undervalued in judging boxing is defense. Defense is one of the criteria for covering, uh, for judging boxing, and I think sometimes it gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. If a guy is a tremendous defensive fighter, you could win a round. You obviously have to land punches, but but you could win a fight through defense or win rounds through defense. And I think sometimes that just gets overlooked. 
Yeah, you know, I agree with you. And I think that judging, uh, just like, just kind of piggyback off what you just mentioned right now, like we want them to do it perfect. I think their job and a surgeon are the only ones in the world that have to do a perfect job. You know, uh, we don't want to see, there's no room for error for these judges. But I agree with you. The way they sit sometimes, and some of these judges, I've seen them where they're, they're really kind of crouching their head and looking you know, underneath the ropes or the ref is in their way. Yeah. So it does give, and that's why I wonder when, when Montoya had said this to me one time, and I was like, that's not a bad, bad idea because we're so critical of how they see a fight that we don't even get a chance to see if they really do have a good angle. What exactly are they seeing? My other question always, always been is that they should, should they not be like a, like an age limit or, or go back to a refresh course to see whether or not their eyes are well enough. Or are they responding back? Are they seeing exactly uh, what's in front of them? Um, you know, I, I always think that we can, uh, you know, perfect example. If you're in the union and you're a, a welder, it's every, I believe every three years or so, I could be wrong about this. Every three years or so, uh, you can go, you have to go back and retest. I think that's what judges need to do as well. What do you think? I think that, you know, one thing that they don't talk about a lot, but most real commissions, the good commissions, they do have judging seminars that they require judges to go to. And then they have to take physical, you know, physicals to make sure that they are fit. And one thing I think that's dangerous is, is the ageism aspect in the sense that just right. because a judge is old, means that he can't do the job anymore, which is, is not necessarily true because a, a judge like Dave Moretti is a good example. I believe Dave Moretti is 75 or 76 years old. And he looks at, when you see him, he looks like he's 75 or 76 years old. Right. But he's a very good judge. He's he's one of the best judges in the world, which is why he continually gets those types of assignments from the Nevada Commission. Uh, Steve Weisfeld, who's from here in New Jersey, he's an attorney from New Jersey, is in his 50s. I think one of the best – I've always thought that he's one of the best judges in boxing. Um, so he's not older, but uh, I just think that sometimes – I think with anything, I mean, you can't be 90 years old judging fights, um, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, so some, guys so react, some guys are, are, are a bit different because, you know what, I'll tell you, I've met guys that are like 75, and they're just – they're sharp. They're still sharp, yeah. you know. Uh, in the car business that I'm in, in the industry, uh, even when I was a, uh, a union plumber, I've met guys in their 70s, even like breaking into the 80s, and they're sharp still. You know, they're much sharper than guys that are 20, 25. But then you meet some folks that are in that age, in that age range, that it's it you could totally tell their age, you know, and their life has finally caught up to them and whatever they've kind of lived, you know, if it's been a healthy life or not. But you could see that it's finally caught up. And I think that's my concern with some judges is, you know, we got to know how well they are able to respond to certain things that are on the fly. Because in boxing, you're you're watching the action live. You're seeing this live. It's not like you're seeing a delayed, uh, you know, a uh, 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 program or not. You're there physically. And, you know, the noise and, you know, all the stuff that's going around. I wonder how much of that is a distraction for some of these guys that are in these 70 and up range. Yeah. You know, the thing is, Dave, I think you'd have to look at the judge's track record, like at whether the judge is 54 or 84, I think, you know, look at what, the, how the judge is scoring the fights in comparison to the other judges or how maybe, you know, the commissioner himself might've scored the fight. I, I think that's important. You know, if, if there's a, if there's a history in a, in a recent track record of a judge getting it wrong and the judge is older, um, you know, maybe, maybe the judge shouldn't be licensed anymore, but 
I think the same principles apply if you're if you're 45 or you know if you're if you're 40. If you if you're bad at it, you shouldn't be licensed to do it anymore. And there are there are unfortunately some judges. Look, there there's a judge who, after she you know she C.J. Ross in, in Nevada. I don't want mean to pick on her. I don't know her personally, but she, she you know the score that she had for the Timothy Bradley Manny Pacquiao fight was unacceptable. Oh, God. And then she scored. The Canelo Alvarez Floyd Mayweather fight a draw, and you know Floyd Mayweather won nine or ten rounds of that fight, right. and she scored the draw. So after that, she was never licensed to judge another fight again. You can't keep giving someone high-profile assignments that affect fights that are worth tens and tens of millions of dollars if they can't get it right. So she's the primary example that I can remember in recent years where they just said, "Look, I, I don't think it was an age thing with her. I don't know exactly how old she was in 2013 when she judged the Canelo Mayweather fight, but she wasn't Dave Moretti's age." And they just said, "Hey, look, that's it. I mean, she never judged another boxing match. That, that was the last one." So, um, so I think you know when things are egregious and you need to sit someone down, you sit them down. That's it. Yeah, and you know, and sometimes boxing gets it right, and this was one of them. You know, so. This past week, we had an actual boxing schedule and event that happened in uh, Nicaragua and I believe it was South Korea. Uh, is this where we're at? I mean, did you, did you have a chance to watch that event, those events? First off, Keith? Uh, some of the Nicaragua, some of the Nicaragua event. I mean, it was basically a club card, but at this point, right. uh, we'll take any boxing we can get, I guess. And I mean, um, you know, at least it was boxing, right? It's, it's some... Uh, some indication that we'll get there. We don't know how long that's going to be in the United States or the UK and places like that, but uh, it was something, and, I, and we'll take anything at this point, right? I mean, we're watching, right? You know, we're watching. They're getting great ratings for fights that happened 20 years ago on TV. No, so, man, I, I, you know? I know. You know, so do we see? Do we see like Top Rank, Golden Boy, or any of these guys follow suit? I mean, they, they that. That whole Nicaragua card, the face mask, uh, there was a very light amount of audience in the in the in the crowd and all that uh, wearing face mask and stuff. Uh, but the fighters obviously couldn't wear the face mask. They they you know they're engaging, uh, trying to knock each other's heads off. Do you see this following suit? You know, do you see the U.S. saying, "Okay, the, these guys did it. Uh, you know, um, we're going to have to try to do the same thing." You know, uh, do you see it happening in maybe Florida? Uh, or, or or anything like is Nevada? Are you hearing are you hearing anything about this right now? Uh, not they will try it. It is going to happen. They will have doors uh, shows behind closed doors in Nevada, um, California probably later than Nevada, just based on the things that uh, the governor of your state has said. I don't I don't think they'll be first by any stretch. But uh, I did I spoke to Bob Arum on Friday. And he's told me that um, that they were looking at Nevada, Texas, and California primarily at doing these studio shows. Those were the three states. They have good relationships with those commissions, and they were comfortable with them. He said for the time being they they would not go to Florida, uh, that they weren't looking to do that. Uh, he's you know he's hoping that the UFC events in in May go off well and no one gets sick or anything. But but there's some trepidation. I mean, he thinks maybe it's a little too soon to be doing that. And I, I don't think, to answer your question, Dave, I don't think we'll see those studio shows in the United States until late June, probably at the earliest. I don't think it's going to be any time in May or in the beginning of June. I think they're going to they're going to let some of these numbers go down a little bit. And um, 
before anyone's going to be willing to take the risk, frankly, even if there's no aren't any fans in the building and there are only 50 to 100 people allowed in the venue, they're going to have to be very, very careful and make sure that everyone, and that means everyone, is tested before the show goes forward. Right. You know, I mean, Dana White in an interview, um, I believe it was with it was with uh, um, Kevin Ioli. He mentioned that they're going to spend a lot of money. They're spending a lot of money in this Florida thing. I'm pretty sure that the medical staff is going to be amped up in terms of costs because I've said this on my show. The one thing that that stands out for me and anybody trying to do a, a in studio event in the sport, in any combat sport or any sport across the board is the medical staff because it's got to be slim right now. Um, you know, uh, my wife works in the medical field, she works at the hospital. So everybody is required to be there first because that's priority first to to treat the, anybody that has coronavirus or testing or anything that, that comes along that line. So I'm thinking that that's where the most cost is going to come out of pocket for these promoters is the medical staffing. You know, um, I don't know what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, I mean, they're going to have to make sure that that their bases are covered 1,000% because there's a lot of liability. It's, you know, if, you, if right. you promote a show and someone catches coronavirus at your show, I mean, there are going to be all kinds of waivers that are going to be signed beforehand and everything. And I'm sure they're going to do everything they can to make sure people are safe. But if someone, God forbid, gets sick, and, and that's what Bob Aaron was stressing to me the other day. He said, look, this sucks for all of us. You know, right. the promoters want to make money. We the Everyone involved in boxing wants to go about their business and do their jobs again, but we have to be smart about it, and we can't just jump in just because we're tired of waiting. He said you have to do the responsible thing and the sensible thing and realize that in the grand scheme of all of this, boxing is irrelevant. And, you know, it's While it's my livelihood and it's a big part of yours, Dave, right. it, it's irrelevant in the grand scheme of it all. Right. So we just have to be patient. And whether those fights happen in June, July, or whenever, we just have to wait it out. I mean, because I can't wrap my brain about how they're going to do it. Look, you know, you can have a control area in the studio. But outside that studio, thinking about boarding the fighters, the staff, everybody that's going to be involved in the card, uh, you know, talking about the UFC. Um, how do you have a controlled area where you're going to board everybody? How are you going to have a controlled area in airports, uh, the flights? As we, I, I saw today in the news, there's there's people still uh, getting on airplanes, which is a confined space, not wearing masks, not not there's no disinfection, uh, not wearing excuse me, not wearing gloves. So I wonder, did they did they take any of that? accountable you know uh, especially dana white in the ufc have they taken that accountable is that part of the the budget they're talking about that's going to cost them a lot of money because they're going to have to really uh uh, uh you know fine comb everything they're going to do before these fighters step into that cage right yeah and then what about the people who are asymptomatic and might not test positive for it when they're actually tested now there's nothing you can do about that i mean there's no way around that but uh, there are just so many factors involved, Dave. And like you said, you don't know who's being careful and who's not. I mean, you see people doing all kinds of crazy things every day. And I'm sure your wife can attest to this in the, you know, the, how people wind up in the hospital. And were they being cautious or were they just unlucky and in the wrong place at the wrong time? Who knows? But you see a lot of people still just not adhering to what they're supposed to be doing. And, and you're just like, what, what are you, are you crazy? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> exactly. And people are still doing it. <laughs> uh, so is boxing being smart enough? Uh, Bob Barham, let's talk about Bob Barham a bit here. Is he being smart enough right now uh, to hold back and witness 
first the for the first guy to do the event, which is going to be Dana White. I personally think that's the smartest thing to do is to wait, look at what the other guy's doing first, and then you can uh, piggyback and make corrections. That's what Dana White did uh, with boxing. He looked at the model and said, "Okay, here's where I could fix it." What do you think? Yeah, I think they are just waiting. They're letting someone else try it out and and find out. And and he has said that Bob in particular has said that he said, "Look." Let's see what the major sports leagues do. Let's see what the NBA does. I don't know if the NHL season will pick up again, but the NBA or Major League Baseball, which is formulating these plans to have a season in Arizona and whatever else they're doing. Uh, so he, you know, he's going to take his cue from from other sports, and he, he's not looking to be first, I guess, is <laughs> to answer your question, David. He's not looking to be first and try these things out and have it go south, you know, because – but Bob is a smart – you know, the other thing is you were mentioning earlier about older people being sharp. Bob Arum's 88 years old, and he doesn't – now, he doesn't get around great anymore. You know, I see him in person quite often and everything. He doesn't move around as well as he once did or anything, but he's almost 90 years old. But his mind is very sharp. I mean, you wouldn't know that he's 88 years old when you talk to him, which is why we all still talk to him with, with the regularity that we do because it, he's the same as he was 15 years ago or, you know, or right. whenever he's first talking to him, you know? I've always wanted to ask Bob, man, do you sleep with your money, Bob? I got to know, you know, do you sleep with that money every day? That's what keeps you going, you know? <laughs> Keith, do you ever have a chance? Ask him that question for me and let me know, man. Text me and tell me. Because <laughs> if, that's the, if, that's the, if that's the way I can live to be 88, almost his age, and still be that sharp, is I have to sleep with my money, I'm, I'm going to do it, bro. I'm going to do yeah. whatever it takes. <laughs> I, Dave, I hear you. You know, the thing that, that's interesting about Bob, too, is, you know, he didn't he wasn't born into money. He, no. He's not from wealth. You know, he built it. He took a risk, you know, being a former, you know, government attorney and a, a tax division and everything. And, he, you know, you know, the whole story, how he came together with Muhammad Ali and everything. And he made himself wealthy. And the, and the other interesting thing about Bob is, um, you know, look, people have their faults with him. I understand all that and everything. Right. But. When have you ever heard a fighter say that Bob Arum stole money from them? Even the fighters that he didn't get along with, the fighters that he that disassociated themselves with Bob, Floyd Mayweather, Oscar De La Hoya. You know, Floyd just had a different opinion of where his career could go. You know, from t in terms of tapping into the urban market, and, and he thought he could be a bigger star. And Bob even says, "Yeah, he was right. Floyd was right, and I was wrong, and we didn't figure right. out a way to do it." And Floyd became the biggest star. In the history, from financially anyway, in the history of the sport, you know, Oscar, they had diff you know differences of opinion and everything, right. but they never said that Bob stole money from them. And, no. and there and there are a lot of promoters, and I mean a lot, right? That fighters say that about. Well, his yang would be Don King, you know, and I think yeah. that that his nemesis, Don King, at that time, we're talking about, you know, Muhammad Ali, uh, you know, and George Foreman and all that of that great era of heavyweights, is I think that. I think promoters need the yang of, a, of another promoter to make them that sharp, make them that better. And I think that Bob has that up on a lot of these guys, like from, from uh, uh, you know, Golden Boy and even, you know, even like Al Heyman at the moment. Um, it doesn't force them, in my opinion, it doesn't force them sometimes to give us the best fights because they don't have the yang. Uh, top rank Bob, as we've known, he can be a bit frustrating. He doesn't like to get his fighters involved in the tournaments, doesn't like to, you know, uh, if he can keep it in-house, he's going to do it as long as he can, you know, and that could be a bit, bit frustrating. But like I said, it doesn't seem like the other promoters are forcing him to play along the way Don King used to do back in that time. 
You're right, Dave. And I think maybe one of the interesting things that could come out of this or one of the benefits for boxing fans that could come out of this pandemic is that maybe they will make some of these bigger fights faster because they won't want to pay for tune-up fights. Now, the flip side, of course, is you're not going to come out of this pandemic in the economic situation that we're in and start charging people $80 for pay-per-view fights every other month. So I guess maybe, you know, there's a flip right. side to it, I guess. But, well, let's hope. But I, <laughs> let, yeah. <laughs> so, let's, let's but I do think maybe we'll see some of the fights that we thought might take longer to make. Maybe we'll see some of those fights sooner, which, you know, we'd all we'd be all for that. Right. I, I definitely. You know what? And I hope that folks when it when this comes back, you know, when it starts opening up the doors, uh, I hope folks are more appreciative of the sport. You know, uh, whereas before, like uh when Porter, uh, Sean Porter and Errol, Errol Spence Jr., when that was announced originally and went on pay-per-view, how many people bagged on that fight? And it turned out to be a great, great, great fight. Which leads me to the next topic I wanted to talk to you about here. Uh, an article that you wrote, because you had a chance to interview Sean Porter on the boxing scene. Um, Porter saying, taking some shots fired at, at Errol Spence, saying that he believes Terrence Crawford can beat him. Do you think there's a motive there, uh, Keith? Do you think did you get like a motive off of him, um, meaning that he's probably looking to get underneath the skin of Errol Spence to possibly get that rematch that a lot of us were hoping that was going to happen first? Yeah, the, the story was actually written off a uh, Facebook Live interview, Dave, that he did. I believe yeah. it was about a week ago now, uh, but he did like a very lengthy uh, Facebook Live interaction on the PBC Facebook page with fans, uh, and he's. I think some of it has to do with him getting under Errol Spence's skin because there's an obvious rivalry between those guys. I think they respect each other, but they take little shots at each other here and there where, where you could tell they want to get a dig in at the other guy. But uh, but I think there's a healthy respect there after the after that fight. It was a great, great fight. I mean, unfortunately for them, I thought on September the night of September 28th, I said, man, this is going to be like a real candidate for fight of the year this year. It was, right. it was that good of a fight. And then Derevianchenko and Golovkin fought the following Saturday. I said, well, <laughs> maybe not, you know. Right. Um, but, you know, but it was a great action fight. You know, the, the interesting thing too, Dave, is I think that oftentimes, as you know, when, when we get the fighters at the highest level, they're so good and they're so respectful of one another and there's so, so little separating them that we don't get the great action fights out of those fights that we typically would want. And that was an exception. You know, because, right. you know, to some degree, Spence fought Porter's fight and engaged in that dogfight that Sean Porter needed it to be to be as close as it was. I thought Spence won also, but I don't think he won going away. I think he won seven rounds to five and then he had the knockdown. So I, I thought Steve Weisfeld and I think Ray Donesco was the other judge that had they think that's how they had it. 115-112 and then Larry Hazard Jr. had it. Uh, 115, 112 the other way for Porter. I, I don't think you could make the argument that Porter won eight rounds of that fight. Right. Uh, it was a very, very competitive fight. And and I'd love to, you know, there are other fights we want to see, obviously. We want to see Crawford right. fight Spence. But I'd love to see Porter fight Spence again. And and, the, and just for your to answer your question too, Dave, I think, you know, Porter's very friendly with Crawford. That I, you know, that wasn't advertised all that much over the last couple right. of years, but they are actually pretty friendly. Right. So, so Part of it maybe is that he's just, you know, he sees it. In a, and he actually said that, too. He said, you know, maybe I'm a little biased because Terrence and I are friends, but right. I think Terrence will win. I know. I mean, I was so disappointed when Terrence was like, that fight, you know, doesn't make any sense for me. doesn't do nothing for me facing Porter. And I was like, what? Come on, man. That's a great fight. You know, the thing about Porter 
is that he's there's there's not a whole lot of fighters that possess that style that makes you makes the other opponent commit to into trading with their style you know you got to be you know fairly disciplined like kel brook kel brook was able to continue to fight his style he never got suckered into fighting porter style which is up in close and allow uh porter to come forward and maul you up you know but it, it's kind of hard man when you get a guy that's like a, a mini bull that just keeps coming forward non-stop and if you don't have a jab which errol spence displayed he had a phenomenal jab against mikey garcia but my question was when the fight was announced and we had to do our breakdown was could errol spence uh you know establish a stiff jab to a full-size 147 welterweight and i doubted it i didn't think he was going to be able to do that because mikey garcia is a much much smaller guy and style wise mikey garcia doesn't fight like sean porter yeah errol spence box boxed beautifully against Mikey Garcia. And I think he did it to prove a point because people were saying that, you know, Mikey was, was the textbook boxer and Errol wasn't as good of a boxer. So he outboxed him. Um, but I, I hit his version of it is that he purposely fought Sean Porter's fight to show that he could win that type of dogfight. Now, I don't know if that's true because it could be that Sean Porter made him fight that type of fight because oftentimes he makes everyone fight. You know, usually right. he does. He, Ugas was another guy who was able to box, I thought, against Porter, and he did very well. And there are a lot of people who think Ugas deserved to win that fight. Yeah. Um, but typically, when Porter makes you fight the way that he's comfortable, it, it, it's a very close fight, right? And he's fought everyone except for Crawford, really. He's fought, you know, he fought Keith Thurman, he fought Danny Garcia, he fought Errol Spence, he fought Kell Brook. I mean, who hasn't he fought except Terence Crawford? And and to speak <laughs> to that, Dave, Bowden. you know, I I. I value what Terrence Crawford has done. And I've been a person who have said I, I can, I've had him at the top of my pound for pound list. I see the arguments for Lomachenko. I see the arguments for an emerging Canelo. Uh, and I, and I have counter arguments for those. Uh, so I've had Crawford at the top of my list, but it, you know, you're whatever. I mean, if you have him one, two or three, you can't, you can't not get the PBC fights that you want. And then when one presents itself, say, well, I don't want to do it because we're friends. I know. Just, you know, and Sean Porter has said that they're friends also, but if the money's right and it's now it's a fight, I think people would more, if you said to people a year ago, I want to see Terrence Crawford fight Sean Porter. So people would be interested in the fight, but I don't think there would have been as much interest as there is now based on what he did against Errol Spence. You still want to see him fight Spence more, but I think Porter Crawford now is a bigger fight and a fight more people would want to see than it was this time a year ago. I think I think I think you're right. I mean, I have to agree with you because here one is that Porter gave, you know, a back and forth with Errol Spence Jr., who is considerably everybody's top welterweight champion, right? And Crawford, I think what goes off with Crawford now is his his you know semi war that he had with uh, the Mean Machine, you know, and I, I think that immediately after him saying you know it's it's a meaningless fight for me to face uh showtime sean porter it's got to knock you down a few notches on anybody's list as top you know top fighters uh in, in any division because um, that's exactly how i felt i was like okay then who then who else because it's got to be one of these guys and sean porter would have been that guy to kind of keep you there in the top one two or three spots not facing him 
or facing anybody else, uh, you know, if you're facing another like rated 10 or, or 15 or 20, to me, it just keeps knocking you down your value of where you're at in your career. What do you think? Well, I think he's going to fight Kell Brook next, and I don't think that's going to make a lot of people all that happy. Um, but, you know, but Kell Brook did beat, it was a long time ago now, it was five and a half years ago, but he did beat Sean Porter. Um, you know, a lot of things have happened to Kell Brook negatively since, you know, he had his face broken apart twice in back-to-back fights against uh, Golovkin and Spence. But, and he's not really a welterweight anymore. He's going to have to struggle to get down to the welterweight limit, assuming they fight at 147 pounds. But I think that is going to be his next fight. And I, and again, I think people are going to pick that apart, and to some degree, rightfully so. Because if you had any opportunity to make the fight with Sean Porter, that's a fight people want to see much more. Or I think more people would want to see him move up to 154, even though Terrence Crawford would be a very small junior middleweight. Yeah. I think rather see him do that and fight Patrick Teixeira than they would see him fight Kell Brook at welterweight because what does that really prove? You know, I tell you what, I wouldn't want to see him to go to 154 because it'd be like a, a remembrance of when um, Ike Corte did it, you know, moved to 154, but he was more dominant at 147, you know, mm-hmm. but Ike did it for all different reasons, money, and couldn't get any, couldn't get that rematch with Oscar De La Hoya uh, and whatnot or Shane Mosley, but the same thing with Crawford. I mean, it's unfinished business at 147, you know, and uh, I'd like to see him be a bit more aggressive uh, in in getting these PBC fights as he is on Twitter. You know, we see that he's I've said this, you know, he's he's more lively on Twitter than he is in, in an actual uh, interview, you know, uh, in front of a camera, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the, the, the one the one thing I will say is is Terrence Crawford is a dog in the ring. And, oh, and by yeah. that, I don't mean in a negative way. I mean, he, you know, when he, when it's time to bite down, Dave, as you well know, like when he got hurt against Kavalowskis, and despite what he says, he, he was hurt, right. you know, and it's probably should have counted as a knockdown. And I believe it was in the third round, but he came back and knocked out a guy who can really punch. Right. You know, Kavalowskis struggled with Ray Robinson in his previous fight. There were people thought that maybe he lost that fight. Uh, but Kavalowskis is a, is a very physically strong guy. And he can punch. So it wasn't an easy fight. So I think in some respects, while I agree with you, I want to see Crawford fight the top welterweights also. Um, I don't think he gets the credit probably that he deserves. Now, the Amir Khan fight, I understand why people, you know, Amir Khan is a star, but he's, you know, he's not a top welterweight. So so what was the, the point of that was just to try to get him in there and get a good win against a recognizable name. But, you know, and Jose Benavidez, people say, oh, well, he was, you know, he's hobbling around on one leg, which to some extent was was true, but no one had beaten Jose Benavidez before that. And right. he was a much bigger guy than Crawford. Uh, and, and then the Jeff Horn fight, you know, he, Jeff Horn, I don't think he beat Pacquiao. I thought Pacquiao deserved to win that fight. They gave but everything he, to handle, you know, all he can handle that night with Manny, I thought. Right. And Dave, he's a rough dude to fight. Yep. And Terrence Crawford went in there and beat the crap out of him. I mean, it wasn't even remotely competitive. So. No. I'm not saying Jeff Horn is Errol Spence by any stretch of the imagination, but right. it almost seems to me like he doesn't get credit. No matter what he does, he doesn't get credit for it, and and in some ways he won't until he fights Errol Spence or even Sean Porter or, or even Danny Keith Garcia. Thurman, you know those guys. Yeah, you know, I mean, those are names that it's it must be frustrating on his part where he's the the he's the you know when they talk about streets, you know, well, he's got to cross the street. It's it must be rough, man, when you're the the lonely guy 
uh, across the street and you're watching everybody having a, a fiesta, of, you know, on the other side. <laughs> I'm just like, man. But uh, let's move on up. Let's talk a little bit about Leo Santa Cruz. Uh, Leo Santa Cruz saying, hey, I got options. If I don't get uh, Javante Tank Davis, I can go after Gary Russell Jr. In your opinion, man, uh, what out of the two names right there that he's mentioning, which one do you really would want to see Leo Santa Cruz go after first? I would prefer to see him fight Gary Russell. Uh, they're around the same age and they're closer in weight. Uh, not that Tank is a is a huge guy right. by any stretch, but he's a lightweight now. So um, I would prefer to see him fight Gary Russell because that's a fight we've wanted to see for several years. It, it really depends, Dave, on who you listen to. Some people say that it's Gary Russell doesn't really want the fight, which I doesn't make any sense to me because right. I think Gary Russell is, is a much more talented fighter. It's not going out on a limb by any stretch, but you know I think he's a more talented guy than Leo. Leo is a very tough guy, a volume puncher, who's, who's very, a very tough out for anyone, but I think Gary Russell would beat him. So maybe it's that the fight is too expensive for both guys. You know What both guys are asking for is just too much in terms of what they would get back on that investment for that fight to ever happen. But if I had my choice and finances weren't involved, I would prefer to see Gary Russell fight Leo Santa Cruz. And the other thing is, you know, I think Gervonta Davis would knock out Leo Santa Cruz. I think so, too. Uh, but, but if you make, Dave, if you make the fight at 130, you're asking for a fiasco at the weigh-in. Because Gervonta Davis moved up five pounds in his last fight. I was there in Atlanta at the weigh-in. And he came in a pound and a half overweight for a lightweight fight. Right. Now you have Leo Santa Cruz saying, uh, in the beginning, Leo was saying, I'll go up to 35 even because he has just fought at 131 time now against Miguel Flores. But he said, I'll go up to 135 just for the opportunity to get the fight because I think Leo knows it's a huge fight, a good pay-per-view fight. He'll make a lot of money, maybe more money than he would make for fighting Gary Russell. So I think he was willing to do it. But I think the more that Leo thought about it, I think he realized, hey, I'm giving up every advantage I have. Every advantage, right. Go up 35. You know, yeah, because you know what? Even though you're a volume puncher, for one, you don't know how your body's going to react to throwing that volume anymore. For two, he's not a big puncher. He's more of a guy that kind of just wears you down. And so, how effective is his punching going to be at that at that weight? You know, there's only a few fighters that have left a particular weight move up uh, comes to mind right away. Is Tito Trinidad that carries their power with them moving up in weight? I don't see Leo Santa Cruz doing that. And it's definitely all the advantage has got to go with Tank Davis, you know. And you're right. I, I personally, I'm glad that he rethought that because not only is it's, I mean, I know Davis has got a good size amount of fans in his uh, hometown, but Santa Cruz has a country that comes right behind him. So mm-hmm. that's got to count for something, right? Yeah, and he's very popular in Southern California. I think right. that's where the fight would be, honestly. I don't think it would be in you know, the Baltimore, D.C. area or anything like that, or Atlanta where uh, Tank just did a, a pretty good crowd there for the Gamboa fight. I think right. it would be at Staples Center or some, you know, somewhere like that in L.A. Uh, and I think they would do a good crowd there because Leo's a pretty popular guy. I'm not saying he's a mainstream star or anything, right. but he's a pretty popular fighter based on his style. He's a very likable person. I mean, you're not going to meet nicer guys than Leo Santa Cruz, obviously. But uh, um, and I, I'm not saying it wouldn't be a an entertaining fight because Leo's going to keep coming forward. But I just think Javante Davis is just too big of a puncher for him. Uh, and I think he would get him out of there at some point. So I, I would rather see him fight Russell. And uh, you know, again, that's a fight we've been talking about for three or four years. And, and it doesn't right. really seem like we're any closer to it happening. 
Oh, I know, man. I know. You know, Gary Russell Jr., I bet you he's loving this quarantine because now he doesn't have to make up excuses of why he's not getting back into the ring. Almost like Keith Thurman, right? Hey, I'll, say, I'll, say, I'll say this. Hey, this, has been, this has been a bonanza of activity for Gary Russell. He fought in May and he fought in February. So, right. you know, he's actually fought He's fought more than Leo has in the last year or so, right? I mean, it's uh, – And who would have thought that, right? That's not normally what he does, but uh, – but yeah, so uh, yeah, so and I think Russell realizes he need, you know, he wants to. Uh, he, the one thing I'll say about Gary Russell that I've been told he's never said this to me, but that his hands are ex- now all fighters have problems with their hands right. because it's not normal to do this with your hands. But right. he has uh, abnormal problems with his hands for fighters, I would say. So he doesn't really advertise that much. But part of it is is that his that his hands are brittle. Uh, that doesn't help his cause in terms of his activity. Mm. Yeah, that's a definitely a big thing with fighters, you know, um, all the little bones that you got in your hands, they don't heal up, you know, once you break them, it takes a long time and any little thing after that, when you break your hand, any little thing, you know, can actually uh, re uh, give you another swollen and uh, swelling and, and stuff like that. So, no, I definitely, uh, you know, well, you always want your fighters to be healthy and ready to go. Let's talk a little bit about Canelo Golovkin and uh, Canelo Alvarez, three that have been talks about it happening in September. How realistic do you see it, Keith? Do you really think that's going to happen in September? Um, and do you and you know there's been reports that they may go off and have a tune-up fight. Well, actually, Gennady Golovkin mentioning that his team and himself uh, mentioning they want to they want another fight before getting in with uh, Canelo Alvarez. I don't know if September is realistic based on how long this pandemic is going now, Dave. I don't right. I don't really know. You know, because if you can't have a large crowd, if you're not allowed to have a large gathering then you can't do a fight like that because you need the gate money to satisfy, help satisfy the purses. So they can't do it in, in, in an empty arena or in a studio setting or anything. It's way too big of a fight for that. It would be too costly for the promoters. So maybe it goes to October, November, maybe even December. What I do know, and I wrote a column for the site the other day, and I'm not picking on Gennady Golovkin. I mean, he's been a credit to the sport, uh, you know, has obviously has a fan base and everything. He's been a fantastic middleweight champion. Um, but he wants a tune-up fight against Camille, but it's a mandatory fight. He's right. the IBF champion. Camille Zarameda is the, well, he's the number three ranked contender. So it's not like it's, right. it's not like it's some absurdly overdue mandatory, like Dillian White with the WBC or something like that. Uh, but he is, he is his mandatory challenger. He's the next available challenger. And they had an agreement to fight on, it was going to be on June 6th. I mean, there was some flexibility there on what it might've been, but, um, but he still wants to go forward with that fight. I just don't know how realistic that is based on what the economy is going to be like when we come back from this. Now, he does have a six-fight contract with the zone, and that's the other part that I don't understand. From Golovkin's perspective, he has done nothing but say that he – and he is he has not varied from this stance, that he wants to fight Canelo Alvarez. Right. Whenever Canelo is ready, whenever he's willing, he will fight him. Now, I'm not advocating the way Canelo Alvarez went about it, but now he said, and whether Golovkin likes it or not, Canelo's the A-side. Right. So he's now said, I'm ready to fight. I'll fight him next. I won't have to fight Billy Joe Saunders first. If this is the fight that DAZN wants because they need a big fight to come back with to satisfy their subscribers, to generate new subscriptions, I'm willing to do it. Right. It's very difficult to hear Gennady Golovkin turn around and say, well, I'm, I have to, I have to fight Zarameta first. But you can't blame Why? him, though, right? I mean, look, it's a smart move because he's been inactive. 
he's got to get himself. I think he, I think if anybody in his team, his management, could see like, look, it's probably best that we get him in there, shake off any ring rust because we want to make sure that he's fully ready to go against Canelo. But at the same time, he's he's actually stepping on his own tongue because he's been chasing Canelo from the beginning, from the start, you know, and his fan base as well, saying that, you know, hey, Canelo's just trying to draw him out to get old and, and, you know, wait him out and stuff, and then he could knock him out much easier. Now they can't really use that excuse anymore because now it's the fighter that's saying, hey, let's pump our brakes. Uh, you know, when I said I wanted to fight you right away, I what I really meant was let me first get, get myself, uh, you know, all conditioned and ready to go in the third rubber match, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's going to take a lot of criticism for that, Dave. And the other thing is to look at it from DAZN's perspective. They've committed to six fights for Gennady Golovkin. No questions asked. I mean, he could get knocked out, and I don't think this would happen. But just for argument's sake, say he got knocked out in the fifth or sixth round by Canelo. Well, right. DAZN still owe, would still owe him three fights at a very healthy sum of money per fight. So there's no real risk involved in that sense. I mean, it's not going to affect his financial future no. if he goes into the fight against Canelo and loses, you know, whether it's by a wide decision or a TKO or whatever. Um, the other thing is they don't want to pay him $15 million in effect, which is what it would be, to fight Camille Zermeta. They would have done it before under, the, under what was going on before this coronavirus pandemic started because Canelo right. at that point – had not commit, you know, he was in negotiations to fight Saunders or Smith, and right. he had agreed to fight him after that. So I understand, you know, th at that point, Golovkin wanted to stay busy. He wanted to get his mandatory out of the way because he doesn't want to get stripped. But ultimately, if it comes down to him getting stripped or taking the Canelo fight, from DAZN's perspective, they don't care about the IBF middleweight title. It brings no more value to that fight than that right. people want to see Canelo and Triple G fight again. It doesn't matter if it's for the IBF title or the WBC or no title whatsoever, and it's irrelevant. And and so it almost looks to me like, like what is Golovkin trying to do? Like, while I understand they want to get some rounds in against Zaremeta, right? How many rounds is he going to get in? The guy's twenty-one and zero with four knockouts and has literally beaten no one at the top level. How many rounds is he going to last with Gennady Golovkin? So, so just for argument's sake, say he went six rounds. Is that going to make a dramatic difference for when he? And I'm not saying activity right. doesn't help, but is that fight really going to help him? And the other thing is, Dave, they will have been out almost the same amount of time because uh, Golovkin fought Derevianchenko on October 5th and Canelo fought Sergey Kovalev on November 2nd, four weeks later. So it's not like he has some sort of big advantage over Golovkin because he's been much more active in, in the in, you know short term. He hasn't. You, you know, the only thing I can come up with of their reasoning of wanting to go to, the, to their mandatory and, and, and hold off against getting back in with uh, Canelo Alvarez, uh, Keith, is that they want to wash any memory of the uh, Dermanchenko fight. I think that they feel if we can get another KO real, we can get the attraction that, that they believe they deserve in this rubber match. Because the sense that I'm getting from the fans, a lot of fans, especially my listeners, have all emailed me or come up, have called into the show saying, I don't care to see Canelo uh, Gennady Golovkin 3, which puzzled me because I do care to see it. I thought that both fights were phenomenal. I thought both fights were very, very competitive. Um, and I'm still one of those hopeful fans that believe that we haven't seen the last of Gennady Golovkin, meaning that he hasn't got old, as a lot of folks have suggested. Um, 
But I, I, I just get this, this, this sense that that's what they want to do is wash any memory of the Dermanchenko uh, fight because it, it really did uh, hurt their stock. In my, in, you know, in my opinion, it really affected them in terms of being uh, of more aggressive on the negotiation table because this is something Golden Boy and Canelo obviously have looked into and said, hey, we're the A-side. Look the way your guy looked. You know, he looks like he's out the door. You're going to have to take the crumbs that we're going to give you. He, he's going, Dave, he's going to make an enormous amount of money for this third fight, meaning right. Golovkin will make a huge, I mean, pro, close to double what he would make from fighting Zaremeta or anyone else. Um, so he's going to be paid very handsomely. I understand what you're saying that, you know, maybe the brand was impacted a little bit against Derevianchenko, but you could personally, while I do want to see Canelo Golovkin fight one more time, because although Canelo won the last fight, it was a very, I thought it was a close fight. Did I thought Canelo won also, but uh, but it was a close enough fight where you'd want to see it a third time, right. even though he's advanced in age since since the second fight. But have you ever been more satisfied? And I mean ever. In all of the times that you saw Gennady Golovkin fight, have you ever been more satisfied with what you saw than when you saw him fight Sergei Drevianchenko? It's the it's the most entertaining fight he's ever been in. It, is. it was a great it's, and fight. And it's not close. Yeah. It's not close. Yep. Yeah, no, I agree with you. So, so in my opinion, I, I understand, you know, the, the money is not the same, of course. I, right. You know, there are different stratospheres in terms of the finances. But I would rather see Drevianchenko Golovkin 2 than I would rather see Canelo uh, Golovkin 3. It's not as nearly as big of a fight, obviously. But from a right. pure action standpoint, I would sign me up for round 13 of that. <laughs> as a boxing ghoul that you are like me, that is a fight that I love to see. Because in yeah. my opinion, if you want to watch the memory of what happened in that first fight, you do it in a rematch. Because, yeah. you know, the, 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 what was reported after was that Gennady Golovkin was sick. He had a, he had a cold. Okay, mm -hmm. do the rematch. Let's see if he looks any different, any better. Let's see if there's any truth to that that we could hold to. That's a fight that definitely I was asking for immediately after when that fight happened. But obviously, like you said, the money-wise is what they're chasing, what they've been asking for for quite some time. But I agree with you all the way. The rematch with Dormanchenko makes a lot of sense, you know, in terms of trying to wash any memory of the first fight. Yeah, the thing, and the, and the reason they won't do it, Dave, is because it's such a dangerous fight. And I understand yeah. that. I mean, we don't know yet how much that fight took out of Gennady Golovkin overall because he hasn't fought since then. And and he shouldn't have fought since then. That was a brutal fight. You know, you take six, right. eight months, whatever it is. I mean, uh, you shouldn't fight right away after that. But that was a brutal fight. So I don't. I think they kind of looked at it like, okay, we don't want to see that guy again. But if you're DAZN and you're paying him all this money and at, and at that point Canelo had not committed to fighting him a third time and he was balking at fighting Derevianchenko again. So now what? You don't. You won't fight Derevianchenko. Canelo won't fight you. Mm -hmm. They're not going to keep paying him fifteen million dollars to fight. If you look at it, if he gets what he wants out of this, the zone will have paid him a lot of money, probably close to thirty million dollars, for two of and for two fights against Steve Rolls and Camille Zarameta. Yeah. So, you know, Derevian, whatever they paid him for the Derevianchenko fight. They they should slide him a little you know more because he he more than earned it in that fight and so did Derevianchenko. But the other two fights they really haven't gotten much value for their money and that's you're halfway through the contract and he still hasn't fought Canelo and you're paying him eight 
that the some people would say, well, that's the zone's fault. I mean, that they're the ones who made this deal, so they have to live with the consequences of it, which I understand to some degree also. You know, it makes me wonder because you know Dormanchenko was originally uh, was the name that was brought up uh, for the May fifth fight uh, or Cinco de Mayo fight uh, where the rematch with Canelo, uh, but instead they opt to go after uh, Moderosian. You remember that there, and uh, so they paid step aside money to Dormanchenko. So obviously they knew something about Dormanchenko, which yeah. even a lot of folks already told me they're like this kid's brutal, this kid's ruthless. You know, um, he's he's going to be hard to handle. You know, so they knew something then, and then they finally took this fight. And again, can't blame them by saying that's a dangerous fight. We we already tested that water, and it was almost too deep for us. We almost drowned. Yeah, you're right, David. And he knew Derevianchenko from the amateurs. He knew, you know, he didn't have a lot of professional fights, and his career took off pretty slowly as a professional. But but Golovkin knew what he was dealing with. He even said so in the press conference and in the build up to the fight. He knew that was not – I don't know that he necessarily expected that. Right. But he was not going to be an easy fight, and it sure wasn't. No, it wasn't, man. It was a back-and-forth war between those two. Um, let's go on to our next topic here really quick, uh, if I can find it. I'm going blind, man. I got my glasses. I'm still blind here. Okay, so the quarantine, the self-in-place shelter. Uh, let me ask you, Keith. Who's that, who, what fighters do you think have benefited from this and have not benefited from a quarantine self uh, shelter and placement? Well, you know, any fighter who's injured, I think, benefited from it. Like a good example would be Devin Haney. You know, Devin Haney, uh, he had shoulder surgery in December. Right. And he was made the champion in recess by the WBC. And then Javier Fortuna was going to fight Luke Campbell. Uh, for the interim title. I, I think it was the regular title because he was the champion in recess and then the winner would have had to have fought Devin Haney. Uh, so now, because he's nothing can happen for three or four months, Devin Haney has been uh, reinstituted as the champion um, and he's and he's going to have to make his mandatory defense against Javier Fortuna. Now, Luke Campbell says I should still get my title shot and I understand what he's saying. I mean, the Coronavirus isn't Luke Campbell's fault, obviously. So I, I get where he's coming from from a business perspective. But on the other side of it, you know, Luke Campbell just got his title shot against Lomachenko, and you know he lost probably nine rounds of the fight. And that fight just happened late in August. So uh, I could, I think Haney is probably the guy that might have benefited the most from it in that respect because he'll get to make his mandatory, keep his title, and then uh, you know in his first fight back from this, I think. Um, in terms of who didn't. Who's been hurt by it? You'd have to say Billy Joe Saunders, right? I mean, Billy Joe Saunders was supposed to make a lot of money to fight this Saturday night against Canelo Alvarez. And now it looks like when Canelo comes back, he's probably going to fight Golovkin if, if they can convince Golovkin to do it. Now, maybe Billy Joe Saunders still gets the fight if, if Canelo Golovkin 3 doesn't come together for, for September, October, November right. or whatever. Uh, but I'd, I'd say Saunders that probably has been hurt by it the most financially for sure. You know, I, I I was reading a report about Deontay Wilder that he had an operation in his right uh, right hand again, right? Um, and uh, I was thinking, like, wait a minute, do you t you're telling me he was going to go into a rubber match with Tyson Fury with an injured hand? <laughs> you know, and what was it supposed to be set in June or was it July? It, it was July 18th, but it was actually his left arm, Dave. Left it arm, was okay. his uh, he tore his left his jab arm, his left biceps. He's had surgery on his right biceps before, right. and obviously his his right hand is like a 
Frankenstein hand, basically, at this point, basically right. put together multiple different times uh, with multiple surgeries. He's had a broken arm. He's had all kinds of injuries to his right arm. But this was actually his left arm. He said um, he was on the PBC podcast about two weeks ago or three weeks ago, and he said that he had been given clearance to start doing boxing training in from somewhere between mid-May to late May. So if they would have fought on July 18th, yeah, he would have been pushing it for sure. Yeah. But he might have done it because there was so much money at stake and contractually uh, they had to give him the third fight by that by July 18th, I think, is what was in the contract, which is why it was that date. Uh, I think they're all – no one's happy that the pandemic is happening, but I think they're all happy to some degree that the fight was – was pushed back. It's tentatively scheduled for October 3rd now. Again, who knows? Because that's another one of those fights. You can't have it without the crowd. Right. It just you know, raises it, it raises a question for me. Is it Was it really pride that wanted to get him back in that rematch, knowing that he had this injury? Or was this a push because of the contract that was already set in place for him? You know, I think that 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 this pandemic, it, how, it's benefiting him because it's going to allow his arm to rest up a a lot yeah. more where it's going to be a second guess uh, if they would have stepped in in July. That that makes perfect sense, Dave. The only thing I'm not sure about, because I haven't had the chance to speak to Deontay Wilder since a couple of days after the fight, and it's something I'll ask him when I get the chance to do it, but I'm not sure if he would have had, I don't know how bad the tear was in right. his biceps. I don't know if it's something that he got because he knew he had more time now, or if it was something that he would have had to have had anyway. I don't really know that. So right. maybe it would have been something that he just fought through. I'm not saying that's a good idea, but maybe it's something that he would have done just because he didn't want to let go of the third fight. You know, because if the pandemic wasn't happening, you know, maybe Fury would have used that as an opportunity to fight someone else. And then what if someone knocks off Fury or something? You know, who knows what could happen? Right. When you relinquish contractual control of the situation, who knows what happens? So I think maybe that might have been part of it. But it's worth asking Wilder, I think. Did you get the surgery because you knew you had to get it mm -hmm. or was you knew you had this extra time to deal with and it wouldn't have mattered yeah that's that's something i would love to ask him and find out because you know um it changes everything you know of, of what you know i mean here listen regardless of what wilder has said after the loss to tyson fury the excuses that kind of rolled out um i still respect the kid a lot because he didn't need that rematch number one uh number two is uh he always shows that he goes out there and he leaves it in the ring, right? You know, um, I, I don't know if there was a lot of pride, you know. I mean, obviously, pride was affected there because his ego was, you know, tarnished, uh, or was beaten pretty bad, you know. Uh, so I respect him in that sense. I think he he embodies what a fighter really is, you know. There's that arrogance that we love out, out of our out of our fighters, you know, that they believe, hey, I can't be beaten, you know, uh, you know, there's no way uh, this guy beat me this this way, you know, I, I you know, and, and whatnot, you know. So, like I said, you know, that would be my question to him: Was it really because you wanted to get back in there, or was it because you were you were uh, obligated to a contract? on this particular date. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, money is always going to factor into it, Dave. I mean, they all have a lot of pride and everything. And it, it always makes me laugh when people said, oh, he's, he's arrogant. And he, and he, you know, he's so full of himself. I'm like, yeah, yeah you can't do this for a living without being full. I mean, no, come on, <laughs> you know? exactly. um, so if, so if it, look, if it helps him sleep at night, you know, and, and it, it makes him, you know, it helps soothe his ego or whatever, to think that this the suit was the costume was the reason that this happened, 
and I'm not saying it had nothing to, I don't know what his legs felt like. And, and right. I, I wouldn't imagine that putting a 40 something pound costume on and then having that ring entrance drag out the way that it did, I, I wouldn't think that that helped. But if yeah. it was a real factor to the degree that he said it is, I just would have kept it to myself probably, but I'm not a professional prize fighter. I mean, I don't know what right. it's like to be in that situation. So, but because no good could come of him making, because people are making fun of him now in terms of, you know what I mean? If that was really the case, just kind of know that, go back into camp, make the corrections you need, and then just come out with, I don't know, something that Mike Tyson used to, would throw a towel over your head or something. Don't do anything crazy coming into the ring exactly. and just see what happens. You know, I, I don't know, but I, you know, Wilder is a, a very likable guy. You know, he to me, his story is incredible. Where he came from, starting boxing so late, and then becoming one of the most pulverizing punchers we've ever seen in the history of the sport. It's an incredible story. Um, now, you know, now it's up to him to correct what happened on February twenty second. Luckily for him, he's guaranteed the opportunity to do it, and now it's up to him to make the most of it. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of things that that you have to look at what happened with Wilder, you know, but not take away what Tyson Fury did that night to him. I thought he had executed a phenomenal plan, a Kronk's, uh, uh plan that they gave to him to use against Deontay Wilder. But the massaging of his legs, when I saw that immediately, I was like, holy smokes. Uh, do they not remember Thomas Hearns when he got in with, uh, you know, uh, Marvin's Marvin Hagler? You don't massage their legs. You don't get them too relaxed. Then the suit, we don't know how much, you know, the, the weight of the suit can contribute, the, him sweating in that suit can contribute. There's a lot of factors into there, you know. Uh, we're, we know, as you know, a lot of fighters have these superstitious, uh, uh, superstition uh, rituals, you know. And maybe um, uh, Deontay Wilder should knock that one away wearing these, like, over-the-top costumes, uh, you know, in his ring interest and go into the gladiator state of what Mike Tyson should do, as you mentioned, with, with the towel. Let me let me ask you about uh, Devin Haney because you brought him up, okay? Uh, how this is going to benefit him? Well, you know what I've noticed that some fighters right now, having all this free time, can sometimes get caught up a little bit too much in the moment when doing interviews. Devin obviously got caught up in the moment of taking a page from Bernard Hopkins when Bernard Hopkins was going to verse Joe uh, Calzaghe uh, by saying, "I would never let a white boy beat me." Do you think he got caught up in the moment of, no, let me ask this, let me rephrase this. Do you think it's really racism when he was bringing up or was this a fighter pumping at his chest? Yeah, I, look, it was inadvisable what he said. I mean, even if that's the way he feels, saying that in a public forum is, is not going to go over well, obviously. I don't know what he was thinking in that moment. You know, maybe just, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to explain what he was thinking because the one thing I'll say about Devin Haney, in my interactions with him, he's a very respectful person. He seems very smart for and, and mature for a young guy. He's only 21 years old. Exactly. And I know a lot of 21-year-old people, and, and not just boxers, but other 21-year-old people, and he's much seems much more mature than those people. Uh, he's been He's been groomed to do this his whole life. I mean, I, you know, this isn't, you know, he's been meant to be in this spotlight and everything. And I look, people are not going to forget it because it was a pretty ignorant thing for him to do. And, and he, but he knows that. And he right. said, look, I, you know, he apologized for it. And he said, you know, it, it was foolish of me for, to do it. I understand why it was wrong. And you just have to take him at his word because what he has no other history of doing anything. You know, the kid's never, as far as I know, anyway, right. has never been in any trouble or anything like that. He, he has always, to me, come off 
like a, like a respectful, smart guy. So let's yeah. hope that that's what he really is, and that that was just you know a blip in his history that will not reflect well on him, but that he can overcome. Because because again, I don't think he's a malicious. He doesn't strike me as that kind of guy. Right. Maybe he just got, got caught up in. But but the one thing I will say is it's on him. That's his fault. You know, people were saying, oh, he was on a. You know, the, he was goaded into it on a YouTube channel. I didn't. I watched the whole interview. Yeah. And I didn't see anyone prompting him to say anything about race or anything. They were reading questions that were or comments from people. You, I guess you pay five. I don't know how it works exactly, but they you pay five bucks and you get to ask him or say something to him and he responds to it. And to me, the the question didn't seem to be about race. He seemed to bring that up on his own, which right. obviously everyone found surprising. But um, but it did. He he. But the other thing is, he took ownership of it. He didn't say, "Right." I don't know how he could have said it was taken out of context or anything like that, because it was there. You know, it was plain as day what he said and how he said it. But he took ownership of it. He took responsibility of it. Hopefully, he learns from it. And when he, you know, when we come back to business here, you know, he's better for it in some way. I gotta agree with you uh, with everything you just said right now. I mean, yeah, I think the kid owned it. You know, I mean, he said it. He owned it. Um, I had a very light conversation uh, through text with Mario Serrano, who is uh, his publicist. And I was like, hey, are you guys going to still do any interviews? Because I had just had Devin Haney on the show. And he was like, no, not right now. <laughs> He's like, and I was like, that's a good PR right there, buddy. Yeah, I think I would put it stop for a moment, you know, uh, and allow them to collect themselves and kind of rethink uh, the strategy of uh, collateral damage that they had to do. And I think he did a great job. You know, he's a very well-schooled uh, fighter in and out of the ring. His father, I've had a chance to speak to him as well. Uh, very smart guys, you know, and I think he got caught up with the moment, man. Um, Keith, again, man, I want to thank you for coming on, leaving the ring and talking with me, uh, boxing here on the show, man. Uh, much appreciative. Got to have you on again more more regularly here on here, man, because I had a great time. Uh, you're full of knowledge and uh, uh, one of the most respected writers in the game. Yeah. Hey, Dave, I really appreciate it, man. I appreciate the kind words. I appreciate you having me on. And yeah, I'd love to do it again. So just let me know. And uh, hey, you and your family stay safe out there, man. I know it's a crazy time for all of us. And you said your wife works at a hospital and everything. So, you know, keep her safe out there and, uh, you know, we'll do it again for sure. All right, brother. Here you guys are, man. Keith Attic from Boxing Scene and your host, Dave Duenas on Leaving the Ring. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. Don't forget uh, to go and hit the subscribe button, hit that like button, and hit that little bell for notification to let you know when we go on live here on Leaving the Ring. Uh, everybody, have a great, great, great week. Enjoy it with your family. Stay safe. Wear your mask. Wash your hands. Don't be an idiot, okay? And don't drink chlor chlorine or inject yourself with Lysol or anything like that. All right? Take care, guys. <laughs>